welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalpena. And on this week's episode, we welcome Jason Fox. Jason is one of my former colleagues who I worked alongside at ESPN headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut back in 2014-2015. And in addition to being a work friend of mine, Jason is one of the unique characters in American cricket landscape, born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, to then go on to represent USA at international level for the USA Under-15 national team. So Jason has quite a number of stories to share in terms of his cricket playing experiences growing up in America, which posed numerous challenges, both geographically and culturally, coming out of Kansas. And we'll go on to talk about his work experiences at ESPN and beyond in part two, because we went on quite a lot of tangents in our discussion between me and Jason. So we had to split up the interview into a couple parts. This will be part one this week, focusing mainly on his playing experiences and what the American cricket culture was like for him trying to get involved in the sport and all the various elements that he encountered over the course of his many years involved in the game. But first, I want to thank the newest Patreon patron on the podcast, Gary Butterworth. Gary, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. I met Gary in Florida a couple years ago when he came down with his wife to watch some cricket matches in Florida. I believe it was USA's first ODIs. He was one of the 19 people, the very privileged few 19 people who turned up in Water Hill to see USA play Papua New Guinea. And he had his red, white, and blue regalia on to support USA. He came down from Washington, D.C., along with his wife, who both work in media, not cricket media, but media that they both are heavily involved with in the Washington, D.C. area. I know Gary is a big-time supporter of the USA national team and USA cricket, so Thank you, Gary, for also showing your support for the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. And for anybody else who hasn't done so, I encourage you to do that. Be like Gary. Go join on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You can help keep the podcast running from week to week. So thank you, Gary, and to thank you to everybody else who has already joined thus far. I really appreciate your support. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast would also not be possible without the support of our sponsors from week to week, including Dream Cricket who has been a longtime supporter of cricket in America for more than a decade, as well as Moosa Cricket Stadium, first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket. We have a former USA Under-15 representative, former ESPN Cricket Info employee, Former, a lot of a lot of stuff, I guess. <laughs> you yeah. lived an interesting life, Jason Fox. Jason, welcome Thank to you. the show. It's great to be here. Thanks. It's it's been four or five years, maybe six years since I last saw you. When I I escaped myself from the Building Three bunker in Bristol, Connecticut, and you made your escape a little bit longer after me. That's yeah, we'll, we'll I came into, back. You <laughs> did come back, yes, briefly. We'll get into that later. But uh, first, for people who aren't aware of your background, born and raised in Kansas. Your, your born dad, and raised in Kansas. Your dad is Australian, but your mom is, is from Kansas. And you have a very unique backstory in terms of your journey into cricket. I don't think I've met any other American representatives at any level, junior or senior, who learned their cricket in Kansas, but I can vouch for the fact that there is an awful lot of cricket in Kansas because I went to university in Nebraska. I played club cricket in Kansas and Nebraska, so I know there's plenty of people out there interested. And I'm curious, how did you get into cricket with your dad and with all the other surrounding elements of, of the cricket community in Wichita? Yeah, so it started on a family trip to Australia in 2002 someone bought us like you know the sets you get in the really poor plastic bags it's got four stumps a set of bales that's like one bale that's like super long uh and a tennis ball and cricket bat it's the first time outside of like my dad trying to show us how to play cricket when we were like very little like there's pictures of me in like yellow pads when i was like four or five but i was not very into it at all 
Um, but that entire trip, my brother and I, we were just like literally at a rest stop or like in the driveway or in the backyard, we'd bust out this like cricket set and we'd just play around. And we had no idea what we were doing. I remember watching um, Australia was playing a one day series against Pakistan. They were playing it inside. So it must've been Melbourne. It was like summer, like in June or July of 2002, I'm sure. But I was like enthralled with the Pakistani team. And I was like, oh yeah, Pakistan is like the best cricket country ever. I had no idea. And so whatever, whatever, like we're on family vacation. We do that. We come home and my dad's like, do you guys like cricket? Do you want to like maybe get into cricket? And we were like, yeah, cricket's cool. And so he bought 15 acres in Hayesville, Kansas, about 15 minutes south of the airport in Wichita. And he built a field and it's got a synthetic wicket. It's a gigantic field as far as like size is concerned. It's huge. He put a pavilion in and two practice wickets, uh, both synthetic. And uh, we started our own club, Wichita World 11. After he found a couple of clubs in the area and he couldn't get a game for one reason or another. So he's like, screw it, we'll just do it ourselves. And we just started literally taking everyone. I think our first game, we had like three or four Americans, one of which was female. She was like an ex NCAA softball player. She was like a gun and everyone hated that. I mean, this is like the early 2000s. So it's a different time. Um, but yeah, we taught Americans how to play. My dad did like five years going into schools, like every single day teaching. Jason, you, you say it's a different time. I don't really think so. Nine years later, I don't really witness too many people eager to have women involved playing cricket in America. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's true, but it was worse. And I mean, like, I think the whole reason he ended up doing what he did is because he's fat and white and he couldn't get in with the subcontinent community to play a game of cricket. And I mean, like, it sounds crazy to say that, like, yes, I have experienced racism in American cricket, but I know for a fact that, you know, and I'm sure you've heard that, like, some version or another of, like, oh, cricket's not in your DNA or, like, Americans don't play cricket or, like, cricket's, like, our thing or whatever. Looking back on it, that is definitely the thing that happened that drove him to, like, buy property and build his own stuff. And it's, like, so mundane compared to, like, proper racism that matters. I'm, like, I'm playing cricket, so it's, like, it's not the same thing as, like, serious racism. But, yeah, it is what happened, and I think it's how we got to where we got to in Wichita and having our own team that looked different than everyone else's team. Like, we had everyone. We had South African players. We had Australian players, English players. Like, WSU, Wichita State University has a ton of, like, people studying computer science and aerospace engineering from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nepal. We had Americans that literally had never seen a cricket match ever in their life before that played. Air, the aerospace engineering companies in Wichita, Raytheon, Boeing, they all have like expat employees that never thought that they'd play cricket again, especially in like Wichita, Kansas. I think my dad, when he moved to the United States in the early 90s, he was worried he'd never see cricket again. I saw a tweet by you or something. Maybe it was like the interview podcast you did talking about watching like the 2005 Ashes on repeat all the way back from Australia. It was like that, that for him, like until satellite TV was carrying cricket, he couldn't see anything. Like he, people would send him like VHS tapes over, but he had to buy like an Australian VHS player to watch them in the United States. (laughs) <laughs> the dreaded PAL versus NTSC difference yeah. in, in recording software. I will tell you, I had an NTSC copy, or maybe it was a PAL copy of the India Australia series from, must have been 2001. Yeah. I watched that so many times. I cannot tell you how many times I watched like Parmesan tear down the Australians or like Matthew Aiden sweeping. Like I watched that DVD a lot, like a lot, a lot. And some random like, ICC Champions Cup, like before Bangladesh was like a test playing nation, whatever we can get our hands on before the internet properly took off as well. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a lot. It's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things, this is a delicate subject, but I think since you brought it up, it is worth talking about. And it's a very nuanced issue with regards to what you characterize as racism in American cricket. I don't know if I would characterize it necessarily as racism, but you you do feel like there's strong parochialism and factionalism that seeps into some form of discrimination at times where people who look at you 
and make assumptions and it's just prejudice in the most basic sense of the word they prejudge and they assume that you can't do a certain thing or, or that they don't want you involved and it has held me back in my initial formative experiences in in cricket in america back in 2006 when i came back from my semester abroad in australia where i first learned the game and i've i've witnessed it happen to other people and heard anecdotally the experiences from other people and it's a very, very fascinating kind of conundrum and dichotomy where the overwhelming majority of the cricket community in the U.S. is South Asian and to a lesser extent, West Indian. That's from a playing standpoint. That's from a administrative standpoint, league management, club management. And even though there are plenty of first, second generation English, Australian, South African expats who like yourself, first-generation kids who are born and brought up in, in the U.S. and whatnot, it's very, very rare to encounter those people in the cricket community. They just don't exist. There's a variety of reasons for that, but I've always felt that one of them is that there's some sort of tension that exists, that people, it's just not a very welcoming environment to walk into. And unless you encounter somebody who is very, very hospitable and ha takes more of a cosmopolitan view of trying to start up a cricket club or welcome people and trying to spread the game and to get people interested just out of the goodness of loving the game and having a passion for the game by and large a lot of clubs around the u.s and this is not unique to kansas <laughs> or nebraska but it's all you know i've seen it in new york new jersey i've seen it in florida i've seen it in california texas you can't even say it's it's along racial lines or ethnic lines at times because you you've seen it and i've seen it there are clubs where it's not even good enough to be indian you have to be Punjabi or you have to be Tamil or you have to be Gujarati. They won't accept just any Indian. You've got to be with Gujarati heritage and they will only speak Gujarati in the club. So if other Indian people aren't even allowed to join or welcome to join a club that's exclusively Gujarati, then what chance, what prayer does somebody like you or I have to try and get a response when you send an email out or a phone call to one of these clubs? <laughs> along those lines i mean you touched on it with your dad what are some of the experiences that you personally have had that you you felt made cricket challenging to warm up to and how did did you overcome that to really develop a passion for the sport in america i think there's a couple of problems uh number one like cricket in america has a culture crisis there isn't a cricket culture in the united states it has suffered from that and it won't continue to suffer until one way or another, there's some sort of culture developed. Number two, it's the, the club setup. I think saying clubs is generous, if we're being completely honest. There are cricket teams in the United States. There aren't cricket clubs. There are very few actual structured cricket institutions in the United States that are set up to do the things that every other cricket club across the world is set up to do. I mean, I played some great cricket in Australia. I've played with against other clubs in England. I know what that setup's like. I mean, I've never played in South Africa. I know India kind of works a little bit differently, but generally speaking, like there is a institution to like bring people in, to funnel them into teams of their either like skill level or whatever. That does not exist in the United States, like at all. There might be one or two clubs, a league that like are proper cricket clubs that can pull that off. But otherwise it's, it's like you said, like there's like the Gujarati team. There's like the Pakistani team. There's the like Tamil speaking team that has like South Indians and Sri Lankans in it. Um, then there's like the Sri Lankan team that isn't Tamil speaking. There's like the Bangladesh teams. And then everyone else just kind of has to like find their place, right? The benefit that like I had is like at the time junior cricket was in the United States was like just kind of like starting up. And I had the means, well, I didn't have the means, but my parents, my family had the means to like send me to Dallas or Houston to play or like pay my way to go to a regional or national tournament to like Florida or New York or the Bay area or whatever. And every summer I spent my summers playing in San Francisco or in Dallas or in Florida or in Chicago or wherever. And so like, I was just present and I was like talented enough at that age to like play at a like a higher level for that age group. But I think probably the biggest factor is that like my parents were able to send me to play. I'm sure there are tons of other kids that are better than I am that never got to go because they just didn't have the cash or the connections or whatever. 
and you know, I mean, like it helps. I have a cricket field in my backyard when I was a kid. And I was playing like every weekend, so like I could go bowl to my heart's content without like literally walking like 500 feet from my front door. I do love. I did love the sport. It's a great sport. I was not into sports until I started watching or playing cricket. I don't know. Cricket's just great, man. Like we all feel this way about cricket. Like it's different, I think, than following any other sport. I don't know if it's like the time level you have to spend like during a day. It's like a whole day's affair, right? Like eight hours or you know whatever. My dad says that a bad day playing cricket is better than a good day at work, and I think he's still like I think he's right about that. The first time I ever saw Shane Warren bowl someone, I was like, oh, this is sweet. And I'm like super into this, actually. Because, you know, he was good and he did cool things and he was a bit cocky. And I was like, this is cool. This is the kind of stuff that I can get into. And it was different. And I was talented at it from the get-go. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. And my dad had the passion. And it was a way that we were able to like build our relationship. I mean, without him, I would never have gotten to cricket at all. It's just something that he was able to foster and then I really enjoyed and was able to, to take off and, and to play and to like the highest level I was able to play and then play for fun after that. It's kind of fascinating to hear you talk about Shane Warren getting sucked in by Shane Warren because even though I'm about eight, nine years older than you, I was basically getting sucked into cricket by the same things at the same time. You were doing it as a 10, 11, 12-year-old. I was doing it as a 20, 21-year-old in my semester broad experience where you see the 2005 Ashes and you see Shane Warren, he's just such a charismatic figure that it's hard not to get sucked in. And you see that and you look at him on the TV and I conceptualize him as just like an Eli Manning or a Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or whatever baseball superstar that when the camera was on him, it was eye-catching. I mean, you, you couldn't turn away. And the things he would do, yeah, when you're coming from a different- I mean, I remember being heartbroken that uh, he got that, like, I think he had a two-year ban, they reduced it to one, but he still couldn't play the 2003 World Cup. I remember, like, refreshing constantly baggygreen.com.au back in the day, right? One of the other things, though, to, to go back what you were discussing, though, which I, I find um, reflecting interesting to hear from your perspective, again, some of the things that I was experiencing outside of- uh, what your family had experienced with Fox Firefield and Wichita World 11. When I was in Nebraska in 2006, 2007, early 2008, that field had quite a reputation early on. Everybody talked about Nebraska, like, oh man, have you heard about this field in Wichita? Like, maybe we should try and go there one day because this Australian guy built this field in his backyard and it's incredible. And have you seen the pitches and whatnot? And then I went to Wichita for a tournament. The teams that were there, when we asked, like, hey, you know, why, why are you guys hosting this event at this other field? Why, why can't we play at box fire field? I forget what exactly they said, but the gist of it was basically like, Oh, those guys won't let us use their field. They keep it all to themselves. Reflecting back on it. Now I'm thinking about it. It's like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense why they kept it to themselves because they probably wanted to play and you guys wouldn't let them. <laughs> so this was, I mean, look, here's the deal. And I'm sure you have experienced this. Like uh, you need money to run a cricket field. Yeah. And you can't mow that and like paint the fences and pay the water bill and the AC bill in the pavilion without like, you know, someone paying for that. It's always been a point of frustration at how poorly Foxfire was treated because like it's an incredible facility for what it is. Like, yeah, it's not like a top of the line, like international class, like boutique field, like you would find in New Zealand or whatever. And it's like not even like a nice like grade field, first or second grade field. But as far as like private cricket fields in the United States go, uh, it was pretty great at the time. I don't know. Maybe they took it for granted, whatever, whatever. Maybe they just didn't want to pay the bill that it would have cost to play a tournament there. Well, you get, what you, pay for. Yeah. You, you get what you pay for in U.S. cricket. And you go around the club facilities, club facilities all around the country. And like you said, they're not really genuine club facilities. It's a multi-purpose field that they rent and they get a cheap permit for because they're not willing to pay top dollar to get the proper maintenance that's required to maintain a cricket field to the expected standard that you would get at national level standards in other countries or even high level club or grade level cricket in Sydney or Melbourne or in some places in England. A lot of players in the U.S. are just content to have the lowest barrier to entry. And if that means paying nothing or getting free access to a garbage field, hey, as long as it's free and we get to play, why should we complain rather than paying? <laughs> I mean, like... You know, a fee where you do get the maintenance. And, and we've seen that in Indianapolis 
or or Florida and Lauderdale. Now Lauderdale, you know, to use the stadium to rent the stadium in Lauderdale for a day, it's fifteen hundred dollars, and that's that was lowered from the original price tag it was twenty five hundred dollars if you wanted to use it for a day. They lowered it to fifteen hundred. Still, nobody uses it unless it's an international event. Nobody uses it, and even in Indianapolis, when they opened that World Sports Park field in twenty fifteen. The daily price tag to use the turf wicket there, I think, was either $450 or $500, which is a third of the cost of what it is in Lauderhill to access a magnificent world-class outfield with a turf wicket. You've got eight nets that you can access for training at, in Indianapolis. Nobody uses it because instead of paying $500 to play on a turf wicket, most clubs say, hey, I can pay $100 or $50 to play on AstroTurf or matting or some other garbage facility. And hey, I'm just having a hit around with my pals on the weekend. I'm not trying to play for USA or not trying to play international cricket. So it's not worth it to me to pay to play on a turf wicket and to play on a nice outfield. So I'll just play on this steaming pile of garbage and go home and say I got to play cricket for the weekend. And and so th that that demand, it's so sad. But yeah, when somebody dips into the pocket, whether it's your family or I, I can look at Saki Muhammad down in Texas is another good example. He's spent more than a million dollars out of his own pocket to cultivate a field. And the cricket community in Houston has basically said, well, thanks, Saki. Let us play for free. We're not paying you any money because if you don't let us play for free, we'll just go play for free in Katy or some other part of Houston on an artificial week because it's free. We're not going to pay extra to play on your turf wicket, no matter how nice it is. And the cycle continues. It's never broken. I think that the honest to God truth, and I don't, I'm not trying to be offensive when I say this. I just find it to be the truth, which is like most of the players in the United States have never played organized cricket before ever in their lives, whether they're expats or whether they are like us born and bred players. Like they've never played organized cricket that has access to all of those things that you just said. Like whether it's in literally any cricket playing country or like cricket playing adjacent country. And so you know, it feels like they don't know like what it could be. And so they're content to like not pay the money for it because they were playing like on a trash field somewhere else too. And this is like, it's a gigantic step up, I think, for players that have never played organized cricket to play like on a, like in a park with an artificial wicket for most players in the United States. Now, like, you know, there are guys that have played like high level, like, cricket in india or pakistan or sri lanka or like wherever that come to school or get jobs here or whatever and those guys like they left cricket behind to go to work or you know study or whatever so they're not like super enthused to be playing cricket in the united states anyway because the quality of the game is so much lower than they're used to like the, it feels like it's not like really worth their time is my kind of like take on it like i've played against some good players that came through oklahoma pakistani first class player that was like very 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 good but like he showed up to a couple of games, like one or two games every year. And I don't blame him because it's like, why would you turn out to play in like a bowl field somewhere in Oklahoma City where it's like 115 degrees at 11 o'clock in the morning? Because you're used to playing on like top class Pakistani facilities. I get it. At the end of the day, it goes back to the lack of cricket institutions and cricket culture in the United States. Like there's no strong, we're so big. The country's gigantic. All that matters are the metros. Well, you say that, and everybody says that, but people say that like they've just discovered that and that they, America hasn't been big for the last 240 years. Like, oh, I just realized yesterday, oh my God, we're in a big country. Like, no shit. <laughs> that, that hasn't yeah. changed. That hasn't changed since America was founded. <laughs> but by the time I think like in the larger metros, like what are you going to do? Get a city to put together like enough nice fields to actually like, get rid of the trash fields to have like a nice league like no you see in houston like you got to do it yourself like where's the space in new york right like where's the space in northern california like yeah there's some really nice stuff in southern california but like by the time that there's like a big enough player base to make like local governments take notice like where are you going to put it who do you have to beat out to get it and like why are they going to give it to you until like a like a state or regional or national body or like whatever can put together plans with local governments to get like quality facilities, but even still, like what's the incentive? Well, the only place that's really succeeding to some extent that I've seen recently has been a few places in the East Bay of Northern California. And why are they succeeding? It's because they're getting kids involved. Nobody, and, and this is not something new, 
I've had people say this to me and, and I'm not coming up with an original quote by saying this, but nobody's going to build a new state-of-the-art cricket facility out of the goodness of their heart for a bunch of 40 and 50-year-old men. They're only going to do it if there's a return on their, their investment through youth infrastructure and grassroots development. And so when they see kids playing, in particular, if they see girls playing, because America's got such a great emphasis on equal opportunity for the sexes and Title IX and all of those things, one of the things that has held it back cricket developmentally is the fact that cricket has been an overwhelmingly male-dominated sport in the U.S. So unless you've got girls playing to satisfy the equal opportunity requirement that most federal funding... Also, like, the United has. States women's cricket team is better than any women's cricket team in the world. We just don't know it yet, in my opinion. Well, 100%. The ceiling for them to grow is sky high in a very short space of time. U.S. women's cricket, and again, I'm not saying anything new. This is not a new quote. This is not original. I'm probably not the only person saying this. But USA women could be a top 10 ranked team in the next five years if they get their act together with developing some of the players that are breaking into the team now. And it was very encouraging to see them pick in the recent squad announcement, seven teenagers, including I think five or six debutantes who are all 15, 16 years old, who they're giving opportunities to very young. We're all American born, or I say all but one. One, one of the girls, Gargi Vogler, who was the national MVP in the women's championship, who's 18 or 19 years old. She was born in India, but I think moved to the U.S. when she was six months old or a year old, basically growing up in Los Angeles. But the other six players are all born and raised in the U.S., developed their cricket in the U.S. And it's that selection philosophy and that mentality to give those players early opportunities that has been absent from the men's team for the better part of 50 years and why USA women could potentially get into the top 10 in the next five years, whereas the men's team could go another 50 years and still not break into the top 10 because there's just never been an emphasis on local development, giving opportunities to local players. And it's, we'll wait for the grassroots from India and Pakistan and Guyana to make it to then uproot themselves after they turn 23, 24, 25 and replant themselves and transplant themselves to the US. And that's been the de facto youth development system for America and cricket is wait for the BCCI and Cricket West Indies and the PCB to do all the heavy lifting. And then USA gets to swoop in and kind of take credit for somebody else's work. Meanwhile, the youth development within the US is forever neglected on the men's side. The women's side, seeing the squad selection that they just sent, will be a very, very interesting case study going forward to see parallel how fast the US women's team moves up the rankings compared to the USA men, because the model that the USA women are doing right now in terms of the most recent squad selection, is the way forward. The amount of success that they have and how quickly they do it will be maybe the only thing that gives a wake-up call to administrators in the U.S. and to how they should be doing it for the men, too. It's definitely encouraging. And, uh, you know, before I met you, I wasn't so fucking cynical. Or <laughs> before I met you, I wasn't so cynical. <laughs> um, You're not the only person that I think I have that effect on a lot of people, Jason. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not saying you're not right. I'm just saying it didn't happen to me until after I met you. Whether or not those two things are, like, cause and effect, who's to say? I don't know. I've seen good players at the youth level, players that I thought were, like, actually, like, really good and really clever. Some of them have made it, and some of them aren't. And I just don't understand why. It does not feel like talent is the thing that... There's so many extracurricular, like, things you can't put your hands on like especially before the ICC takeover of the United States. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Well, let me ask you this. So as somebody who went and played for USA Under-15 and is now basically no longer playing cricket at a serious level, even though you're only 28, about to turn 29, you know, you're a perfect example of somebody who had aspirations to play cricket. I, I pulled up an article before we talked and it said one of your dreams is to play test cricket for the USA. This is back in 2009 when you were going into the USA under IT National Championships. You're not the only one. A lot of kids have this ambition, be a professional cricketer, represent USA. 
somewhere on the way that dream meets reality with the cricket structure in the U.S. But from going to represent USA under 15, which was in Bermuda in 2008, to then basically not progressing beyond what were the, the positive aspects of getting represented USA, but then what were the reasons why you didn't continue to pursue cricket further? I think it was 2008 when I played for the US under 15s. There was a tournament in Chicago, a selection tournament, which is also like the problem. It's like, oh, we're going to have a tournament. And from this tournament, we're going to pick a squad to play in the thing. You know, there are like 20 or 30 kids playing in this tournament that like are on the circuit they're playing in northern california on the summers like they're playing in dallas like people have heard of them and lyndon fraser i kept and i was bowling and i was like batting like one or two and lyndon fraser was like we don't know what you do and i'm like well like i'm taking wickets and i'm taking catches and i'm making runs so like i'm a cricket player that's what i do because you know what as a kid in the united states like you do what you got to do play maybe so maybe you don't have a keeper today or like maybe I'm bowling medium pace because we don't have a medium pace bowler like that's just the way it is and so Bermuda was great it was weird I signed some form and got some cash well let let me let me go back all right so you playing this event in Chicago coming out of it what indications did you get that you thought you were going to be picked to then represent US under 15 personally I would have been disappointed if I didn't before that, I had spent a year in Australia. Like I went to, I did a year of school in Australia and I was like playing club cricket over there and I was doing some training. And I would have personally been very disappointed had I not been picked. This um, is in Sydney. Yeah, Penrith. Penrith, which is the same club that Pat Cummins was with. Yeah, yeah, but I wasn't paying, I wasn't playing like at Penrith. I was playing at uh, Carlingford, which is like a park club junior side, nothing fancy. I did go back and play with Penrith after I graduated high school where Pat Cummins was playing twos. And then got picked for Australia. I was there for that. His his brother Matt was the first grade wicketkeeper, and so like we would all train together on Tuesdays and Thursdays during wicketkeeper training or whatever. Uh, Jordan Silk also was playing at Penrith when I was there, and that dude was phenomenal. Trevor Bayless was coaching the first grade side while I was there, and it was just fun to be there and hang around and hear what he had to say. Anyway, that's beside the point. Keep name dropping, Jason. Don't don't be don't be. Yeah, shy. sorry. No, it's it's fun. It's cool. Like it's cool that you have access to i'm not shooting you there was like a new south wales like country versus city game that david warner was at at hal oval that i was watching and he was standing at the back of the stands like mouthing off that he wasn't playing because he thought that he was going to get picked for the sri lanka tour and then like yeah a day later he got flown out to sri lanka to make his test debut but i overheard him say that so it's cool that like in a place when you're around like high level cricket somewhere else like you have some access to like this kind of stuff like it's not like they're like hanging out and they like want to talk to you or like want to be involved with you it's not like Trevor Bayless has ever come up to me like hey you need to do this this and this but like you get to hear what he has to say to like playing first grade cricket in Sydney is like one step removed from playing state level which is like one step removed from playing international cricket right Pat Cummins was playing second grade cricket he was fast he wasn't particularly accurate or someone saw him bowling super fast and said like I'll have that thank you very much and then two months later, he was playing in South Africa. Anyway, back to the tournament in Chicago. I think physically, I, I was bigger than most of the kids. Steven and I were probably the biggest kids around. Um, they were. So that's helpful. Yeah. Well, all right. Let me let me run back a little bit to one of the things you just touched on. The experiences that you had in the U.S. compared to Australia, you're always basically in the minority. So you go to Australia, you're the quote, quote, American. Uh, Kansas. You're the Kansan. Yeah, you're, you're the Kansas kid. <laughs> And around the U.S., I'd imagine you're the only white kid who's... Most of the time, the only white boy. Most of the time. There was a dude that was playing in the under-19 regional stuff that was like, he was white, but he was born and raised in India. So he didn't, he didn't even speak English, if I remember right. Which is like, not. It, it's just strange the first time you see it. He's an Indian guy, but he's like a Caucasian man. So your experiences in Australia with Penrith and your experiences in, this in the U.S., being the only white guy in a predominantly South Asian West Indian culture, where did you feel more welcomed and accepted? I think that at the junior level, like the very junior level, it's about on par, honestly. Kids are kids and like they don't, they don't think, we, don't, we weren't thinking about these things like as critically or we're just trying to play cricket and like have a fun summer, right? Once you start to move into like senior cricket in the United States or even under 19, it gets really strange really fast. On Jared Kimber's podcast, Dirk Nanos was talking about like, oh, when we go on tour, like 
we do our own thing. Like we eat breakfast by ourselves, like we do whatever. And then we show up to the ground and train. And then he was like, but the Netherlands crew, they're like eating breakfast together. They're like going out together. They're like doing every single thing together because you don't get any time together. And that's what it's like in the United States, except for I was playing in Central West. Half the kids are from Dallas. Half the kids are from Houston. They like know each other a little bit, but like it's Houston and Dallas and then like everyone else. So on top of being like not from Houston or Dallas, I'm like the young white kid that doesn't speak Hindi or Urdu or Patois or like whatever. And so like they have relationships with all of these other players. They play each other on the weekends. They play on Saturdays in Dallas, Sundays in Houston, whatever, whatever. And I'm not around for any of that. So the geography is limiting, especially being from Kansas. Like I'm six hours from Dallas. Can't really be like getting off school on a Friday, going to Dallas to play cricket and then come back successfully. 13 hours from Houston. And it's not like I'm getting paid. So I'm not flying to play cricket when I have like a perfectly good cricket field in my backyard. If you're a decent player, some things can be overlooked in the States. But there's always just this like, you're not always speaking the same language, like literally. So you're missing out on like a bunch of stuff that's happening like on the field, off the field, on the road trips. And the better clubs and the, and the better people, like they're very inclusive and they don't fall into that trap. But those guys are few and far between. So it's difficult. The barrier of entry to play cricket in the United States seriously from like a non-traditional cricketing background is very high. It's hard. Which did you find more difficult in terms of just playing cricket in general or, or trying to get on the pathway to represent USA junior level? Was it the technical skills access and training facilities access to try and get experience on turf wickets and better facilities to improve your skill set? Or did you feel it was more the socio-cultural barriers? If you're not good enough to even be considered, like that's one thing, right? But like if you are good enough to be considered and then there's like some extra, like some other parameters holding you back. So like me personally at the time and at that skill range, like I was good enough to play with like the best under 15 players in the country. Not a problem. Um, so that I did not find limiting, but the inside baseball stuff is difficult because, you know, you have guys that are like fronting the cash for these tournaments. They have kids in the team or like, if not their kids, like kids from the village or kids from the neighborhood or like somehow they're connected to some of the kids playing and like the people that are paying for it want to see the kids that they want to see take the trip or go on tour or whatever. So like, if you're like a gun player, you can get through all of that no problem if you're like super good but if you're not like the best and maybe there's someone that's like marginally at your skill level that's better connected like they will get picked that i don't think is like unique to the united states cricket but because there's like a lack of infrastructure or like constant contact or a program or anything really like it does put up like a pretty large barrier so i would say as far as like that skill level, it wasn't skill level. Like as we get older, getting into senior cricket and, and like under 19 in the senior cricket, yeah, my skill level was not good enough to play. That's where that ends. There's, there's nothing to be said about the rest of it. Uh, but at the younger level, it was difficult. It was weird to try to navigate that as like a young kid and like just want to play cricket and think that you're good enough to play. And then maybe for some reason you miss out and you don't know exactly why. Were you acutely aware of it as you were experiencing it at the time? Or are you just kind of I mean, like, playing? And- no, you know, because like when you're hanging out and like there's like one group talking in one language and another group talking in another language and no one's like making an effort or like the dude that that has like the Escalade with the that he rented from the airport to fly in that you're sure is like, you know, some crazy amount of money and he's like talking to kids on the side or like he's like a selector or whatever. You're, you know, and maybe I only know because like I'm from, I'm, I have like an outside perspective. And like the kids that are playing, most of them are from like a South Asian background and they kind of like know how that dynamic works. They know, like they call them uncle. And like, I would never call someone uncle. It's just not culturally like something what I would do, right? So like they're in, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can see it. You, you know what's happening. It's, it's not like overt, but it is, if you know what you're looking for. It's not that big of a deal, but it did happen. And it is a useful thing in my life that has helped me like identify other other issues. I've experienced it from my own family dynamic for people who don't know, I'm married to a Punjabi, British Punjabi woman, whether it's from a family perspective, but in cricket as well, I 
don't know if it's because I'm so cynical, like you said, Jason. But when... oh, I didn't know that I said you were cynical. I am definitely. Oh, you cynical. you turned cynical. Oh, yes. Well, I'll, I'll, have, I'll raise my hand. I, I can be cynical. And here's I'll, I'll give an example as to why. When certain people in the cricket community tried to like cozy up to me by calling me Peter by, I get very suspicious. My immediate reaction is not to to go oh. You hold me in such high respect. Oh, you're calling me by Peter by. Oh, it's a term of endearment, respect. When I hear somebody say Peter by, my my antenna go up, my radar go up, and I'm thinking, what does this person want from me? That all of a sudden they're they're trying to shower all this affection on me by calling me Peter by instead of just calling me Peter, <laughs> because I see it and I witness it. Just like you said, I witness it in terms of the other kids, and I've I've seen it in my own family, in my in laws, but I see it and witness it in other cricket players in the cricket community where there's this almost I would call it unearned respect it's just by default there's a hierarchy and it's only based on or primarily based on age and the lower respect is based on seniority and age earned or unearned so somebody could be a coach just like where they could be the biggest jerk on the face of the planet but if they're your elder I've witnessed some uncomfortable situations develop from that where People in authority can, not not always, but it can happen where they seize on that and they know that somebody who's in a junior role or junior capacity is desperate to please, eager to show respect. And it's a very fascinating th- thing for me to observe as an outsider. Yeah, and I've been out so long that I haven't ever really, really dealt with it again, but it's real. You can definitely feel it. And I mean, I'm sure it just doesn't happen to me. I'm sure there's ways in which it happened to the other kids that I'm not cognizant about. Cause like, I didn't pick up like the, the cultural stuff that I like just went over my head cause I didn't see it or I didn't know what I was looking for. But when I did some, did some playing for central East, it happens like uh, people connected to, to the elder management and they get things and they do things. And that's just the way it is. Now I do have to say that, in Wichita, I have been accepted into the local like Bakta community. They know me, I know them. They invite me and my family to their like gatherings. They feed us all the time. We've played cricket together for 20 years almost. And that has been excellent. I tell people sometimes that I'm like a third Daisy just because of how into the community I have been at times because there's really no other choice playing cricket in the United States if you don't want to do it by yourself and on your own like you got to buy into that stuff or else like you're driving by yourself you're driving back by yourself it's not fun there is like a brighter side to it but you can learn to know when somebody in the opposition is is uh, talking about the uh the gora my grasp on hindi is pretty bloody good actually so yeah the, the, hindi gora, the modern chode gora <laughs> that's you that's me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know what's happening, even if you don't know, you know, I can swear in Hindi, I can count, I can say a couple of things. You get to know pretty quick what it's like, when it's good, when it's bad. You can say enough to let them know you know what they're saying, so they better be careful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then when you call them out, they get very, like, defensive about it. Like, oh, no, it's okay. It's just, like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We weren't talking about you. Okay. Trying to wrap up this point about the under-15s, you played with, in terms of some of the guys you played with in Bermuda who were your teammates, just to, again, give a sense of the kind of player you were and the, the caliber of player you, you played with at junior level. Mention Stephen Taylor, who has gone on to an illustrious career with the senior team, USC senior team, but he was one of your teammates. He was one of your peers at under-15 level in 2008 on that tour of Bermuda. Another player who was the captain that was one of the great unfulfilled talents in U.S. cricket for a variety of reasons, Abhijit Joshi who, like you and Steven, was big for his age. I remember seeing him with pictures of him and Brian Lara, where he's towering over Brian Lara as a 15-year-old, and he was a scoring machine as a junior. Pranay Suri. A good player. Very good player. And Pranay as well. Arsh Butch, another one. If you don't know U.S. cricket, if you don't know Arsh Butch and the Butch family out in, in Cupertino. Uh, and then Javan Mushva. You're talking about the kids from Texas. Javan Mushva, who's the son of Asif Mushva the former Pakistani international, who's now the coach of the USA girls on our 19 team. And he's in previous years, he served as 
a U.S. selector and U.S. men's national team assistant coach. So there's quite a lot of good players you were playing with alongside. And on the opposite side, players for Canada and Bermuda have gone on to represent their national teams at senior level. In the Bermuda squad, there's Trey Manders and Canada. And Atish Kumar was the opposing captain, Akil Dutta. So, again, there's quite a number of talented players. What were your favorite memories of that tour and that experience getting to go toe-to-toe with some of the guys in Canada, Bermuda, and, and also just being able to play alongside some of the best talent in America? Uh, the grounds were great. The tour was awesome. We got waxed by Canada, and the Tish was turning it square, and it was just rough. We stayed at the Army barracks for the Bermuda, or maybe the Coast Guard. I don't know. It was different but cool because you got to, like, hang out with all the kids during the night and you're still playing cricket as soon as you got back right the grounds are beautiful i think abiju hooked two balls into the ocean for six against like the cayman islands or someone we didn't do as well as we would have liked to i think we lost to canada and i think maybe that was it i don't remember losing to anyone else i kept wicket in front of steven for most of the games and i was all right actually i think i played well we i never played on a turf wicket before that tour Oh, that's not true. I played at Woodley a couple of times, but like properly, no. So it was a very fast learning curve. I have fond memories of it. I don't know. I feel weird talking about it because like I was 15 years old playing like 15, like under 15 rep cricket. Like I got my shirt framed just because like I wanted to have it and it was nice, but like I haven't put it up anywhere because it's like you're like 15 years old playing like associate level like international cricket like yeah it's cool and all but like should you tell people like no probably not unless it comes up in conversation I mean I'm not embarrassed by it but like I don't like to talk about it as like a as like a cool it was cool but it wasn't like I don't think it's the coolest thing I've ever done well let me ask you this going back to one of the other things you mentioned you talked about cricket you weren't really a sporty kid growing up in Kansas you didn't play other sports cricket was essentially the first sport you really got into and because of that you weren't really exposed to the much better facilities, much better infrastructure that a lot of youth sports have in America and the systems and the pathways and all that. So were you, I guess, oblivious or aware of how good or how bad some of the experiences you were in terms of, like you said, going to Bermuda was the very first time you're playing on a top-class turf wicket facility representing USA. You never got really a, a genuine chance to do it before. Whereas if you're playing football or basketball or baseball, your first time playing in a top class facility, if you make it to USA level, it would be a miracle if you, if your first experience playing on a, a very good facility only happens by the time you actually get to play for a national team or get, get drafted by a, a major league franchise or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean like, yes and no, like, you know, from watching on TV that you should be able to hit the ball and ground for four. Like it's a possible thing that you should be able to do. And in most places in the United States, it is not a possible thing that you can do unless you like clobber it. And even still, it might just stop. And I mean, like I played a little bit of junior cricket in Australia before I played for the under 15 side and like the fields are better. Like, I mean, it's not like, it's not like the fields that the the seniors are playing on, but I mean, like the reason that Australia is like produced like the fielding renaissance that they did 20 years ago is because like their facilities are excellent from the top down. And you can feel the ball cleanly without getting hit in the face, which is not something you can say about American fields. And I mean, you can just play confidently knowing that the surface is never going to be an issue, which is also something that you cannot see in the United States, whether it's like the actual playing surface of the wicket or like just the playing surface in general. So yeah, you know, it's like not top level, but like, what are you going to do? Everyone's playing on it here. It's not like there's some better facility somewhere else. Like, yeah, Woodley, but like not everyone can play at Woodley all the time. As a wicket keeper, I want to ask you this. I just recently had a conversation with somebody who said that when they are training wicket keepers in the U.S., people who have aspirations to one day play for USA, they tell junior players not to keep wicket on fields that are not turf wickets in the U.S., which basically means don't keep wicket almost in every single league match. But the point this person was making was that everybody always talks about the difficulty in adjusting to batting on turf wickets, going from batting on artificial mats or artificial turf to batting on turf or bowling, the difference in bowling lengths and bowling speeds and the way that ball bounces if you're bowling 
whether it's spin or pace in terms of adjusting between, especially for the pace boards too, you know, they're, they're so used to bouncing people on artificial wickets or matting wickets and the, the bounce is true and you can really bounce somebody and scare them at club level in the US. The ball, you've got to be genuinely quick to bounce somebody on a turf wicket. You see that happen at when players go from club level to the US national team and they, they're used to bouncing people at 75 or 80 miles an hour and they try and bounce somebody at 75 miles an hour in international cricket and they get laughed at on a turf wicket. But one, this person that said to me is, they don't want junior players in particular who are trying to develop to keep wicket on artificial wickets because what they were saying was the wicket keepers come up too early. They're used to the ball. It makes you lazy. Early. Yeah. I mean, not so much lazy, but like the bounce is just so consistent. Yeah. Like you don't even have to like ever worry about it. And so they, what he was coming right at you. Yeah. The, the, the wicket keepers come up way too early. And so all these chances, especially for against spinners, for stumpings and edges, the wicket keepers, they come up way too soon. For the ball that's that's bouncing when they transition to turf wickets and they miss so many chances so they let buys go through because they're expecting a truer bounce and it doesn't happen all the time on, on turf wickets. And so as a wicket keeper, you said the adjustment period. What in that regard did you experience going to Bermuda and not just the difficulty transitioning your batting, but with keeping wicket as well? You have to stay much lower and pay much closer attention to the ball if you're playing on like proper wickets. On, on like synthetic or artificial or synth or whatever you want to call it, concrete with AstroTurf on it or like shale with matting. The bounce is like fairly true and the ball bounces and it's going to hit in the chest. It's always going over the stumps. You can pretty much just like stand behind the wicket and unless they bowl it super full, like it's going to hit your gloves. And it, hap- and it, and it, and it does come on much faster, right? Like to your point about bouncing people at lower speeds on, on concrete. I thought it kept really well. I love keeping on turf. It's much more challenging, but it's so much more rewarding when you get a stumping chance or like a a thin edge behind or like something down the lakeside. But you have to be quicker when you're playing on turf because you have less reaction time if you're waiting as long as you should. Plus, like, does the ball spin on turf? Like, yeah, sometimes. But like, there's much more natural movement off of a turf wicket than there is off of a synthetic wicket. Like, that's not news. So... It's all around much more difficult. You just have to be patient. I, I do like it's funny you say that because it's true. Like someone was like, there was a I was playing some games in India. Um, we we're doing a tour with the CCA, the California Cricket Academy. I went on their tour to Gujarat, and there was like a coach that was following us around. He was like, Yeah, you're an okay keeper, but like you get up way too early. That was the same day like Pranay took a hat trick. It was like I, I want to say like I caught one and then I stumped someone and then I missed a catch, but first slip caught it. And he was like, yeah, you're okay, but, like, you get up way too soon. Like, you're, like, pretty much, like, up as soon as he's let go of the ball, almost. And you have to you have to wait until it bounces. Because, like, on synthetic, if you can pick the line and length, like, you know where it's going to end up. And like, that's not the case on a turf wicket. You just got to be better, honestly. You said when you got to adult level, you knew you weren't good enough or you felt you weren't good enough. What was the number one reason why you think you're – development did not progress from junior level into senior level to enable you to really keep pursuing cricket seriously like as far as what i can control my fitness i'm not the fittest guy on the planet and so if you know if you want to play top level you have to be you should at least be the fittest person on every team you play on until you get somewhere that like everyone is super fit so as far as what i can control like my 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 fitness is nowhere near where it could have been or should have been to play like a top level sport it did not help that playing club cricket in Kansas and Oklahoma isn't very sexy. No one cares. It's not difficult. Um, no one's watching. There's no money. No one's paying you to play club cricket somewhere else. Uh, you're not playing against like ex first class or international players, even if it's just semi regularly in somewhere like New York or Dallas or the Bay Area or LA. I mean, if you're playing in the Bay Area and you're fairly good, you're probably getting flown down to L.A. to play on the weekends if you're decent. If you're from Dallas, you're probably, like, playing in Houston or somewhere. Someone's paying you, Chicago. And also, like, I wasn't in those circles, right? Like, I was good enough to play, like, at a high level as a junior. But, like, you know, once you're, like, an adult, you're an adult and no one's looking out for you and no one's, like, doing any favors or whatever, especially in, like, the position that I found myself in. Maybe if I was like living in Northern California and I was playing like top level cricket regularly, like honestly, the truth is now, like I don't play club cricket in Wichita, Kansas, where I'm currently living because like it is a waste of time. 
You drive two and a half hours, Oklahoma City or Tulsa, or you play a home game, play on like, unless you're playing at Foxfire, you're playing on trash fields. The skill level you're playing against is not very good. You either do one of two things. Like you either dominate the day and that's fun when you do it, or like you get sucked into playing like shit cricket. The whole experience, like, no, I don't want to drive five hours to play like a game I hate every single second of. Once I made, once I came back from Australia, playing playing grade cricket in Australia or playing club cricket in England is awesome. There's a structure, there's like higher levels you can play within the club. And even if you're not playing those, like you're turning up to watching them and they're like really great to watch or play. Future stars are playing those games like right in front of you. It's very accessible. You're training with them on the weeks. There's like this culture that even, it doesn't matter if you're going to play professionally or like have a bar in the pipeline or like whatever. You just like want to play good cricket. Someone was telling me they were playing like great cricket in Sydney and like they were like, it was a pro that was playing great cricket and he was getting trouble by someone. He was like, and that dude was an accountant on the weekdays. And he was like really making me struggle. The level is just so much higher than what I had access to constantly that there's just no way you can't, you, I don't think like you can really properly grow your game if you're not being constantly challenged which at the time I wasn't. As somebody who I would say is the target focus for what you would want to try and grow cricket in America as going forward in terms of, again, not, not focusing so much on the expat community, but if you're trying to keep people involved who are developed locally, junior players, and keep them from leaving the system, you're the, you're the perfect guy to ask what can be done differently. So whether it's for you or for anybody else going forward, having gone through the experiences that you went through, what's the number one thing you would want to communicate to any cricket administrator who is watching or listening to this to emphasize to them, this is the most important thing that happened to me that really drove me away from the game. And this is what you need to emphasize going forward so that you don't lose more kids like me from the game in the future. What would it be? Consistency and communication. There's like the one tournament a year right? The under 15, under 19 national tournament. You go to like a weekend where they pick the squad. They pick the squad. You're on your own to fly to, you know, wherever the tournament's happening. You play for four or five days over a holiday weekend, maybe get like two or three games in. And then like, that's it till next season. No one's calling to check up on you. No one's like saying like, Hey, I saw your stats from the weekend. Like, why did you get out for 12? Or like, why didn't you go on to make a hundred? There's no pipeline. Or at least when I was playing, there's no pipeline. Now, maybe it's different. I don't know, maybe they're keeping track on younger players. But now that there's like this kind of like semi-pro league starting, maybe that will change because now there's like incentive because you need a talent pipeline to make this work. Whereas before there was like, it didn't exist. There's no like, what's the incentive to like spend time, effort and energy talking to a bunch of kids about like playing cricket, like they're gonna turn up or they're not. There's nothing coming out of it. So I think that's probably like the biggest issue is like there was no future in the game. And even still, like there is more of a future today in cricket in the United States than there ever has been. And so there's more incentive to like follow up with these kids that are playing at like a regional or like some sort of representative junior level because you need a talent pipeline to, to move either the, like the commercial interest of the game forward in the United States or like the actual interests, the actual like physical institutional interests of the game forward. So since it's there, like do it, nurture the talent, nurture the homegrown talent. Like it's so easy to go play some other sport. Like, so it's like way easier to go play baseball or basketball or football or soccer or like disc golf, like whatever. If you have young kids showing interest that are good playing cricket, like keep them around, do whatever you can to make sure that they are in your fold, in your field of vision. Find the people that are in that region or in that city or whatever and like, use them to keep these kids like invested because there's no way that their parents are going to let them play cricket constantly forsake school or a job at some point to play cricket and it's reasonable because like what are they going to do play for the united states and earn like 30 grand a year maybe no so build the system involve the young kids or you will lose them to everything else me and Jason went in quite a number of different directions during the course of that discussion, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
for part two next week when we spend a chunk of time talking about Jason's experiences working at ESPN headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut, where he was a multimedia video editor for ESPN Creek Info. And then also we touch on more recent events in the context of the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan because Jason Fox and his family have a very, very, very special connection to what has unfolded in recent times through an adoptive son and brother in a way with Mohibullah Archiwal, somebody who helped the U.S. military by working as a translator for the armed forces in Afghanistan, and is somebody that Jared Kimber profiled in a must-read feature in the Cricket Monthly four years ago, the Shahid Afridi of Kansas. If you haven't read that story, by all means, go read it, and if you have, go read it again. It's worth reading over and over, and that'll help set the scene a little bit for what we discuss in part two with Jason Fox. I want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and video form or Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms in audio form. That's it for me from this week's episode. I'm Peter Delapena reminding everybody, God bless America, and God bless American cricket. <laughs>